0: Welcome back to For Fintech's Sake, everybody. This is Zach Anderson-Pettit, your host by night and U.S. content director at Money 2020 by day. If you're a fan of the show, please rate, review, subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. If you're not a fan, then, you know, let's get to know each other some more, see what happens. You know, we'll come back to it. This episode is a special one. It was initially recorded for Smart Friends with Eric Jorgensen, a great friend of mine. The conversation covered enough financially relevant topics that it felt irresponsible not to share it with you here as well. Simply irresponsible. Shouts to Eric for having me on. Check out Smart Friends in the show notes. The conversation is a three-way. The third and star of the show is Omar El-Nagar. I'm sure I butchered it, Omar, you told me how to do it and I screwed it up anyway. He's a hedge fund quant and a data nerd. He's the founder and CEO of Weavechain. What is Weavechain? It's a platform that gives enterprise data new Web3 superpowers. The concepts discussed herein could put an end to fraud as we know it today. Also, this is probably the most I've said the word Web3 or heard the word Web3 in I don't know how long. It's interesting to come back to it. We cover the concept of verifiability, which is a gigantic one with where the world stands right now. Imagine being able to actually trust financial statements. We cover privacy, tokenization, and so many more things. Smart things are said by smart friends. I'm over my skis on most of it, but we had fun and I learned a ton. I hope you do too. Without further ado, enjoy the conversation.
1: Then we're gonna officially start, and I'm gonna get to finally introduce Omar Elnigar, the founder and CEO of WeaveChain, former hedge fund quant and data nerd, to my good buddy, Zach Pettit, the content director for Money 2020, the host of For Fintech's Sake and a fintech nerd. And I think that's gonna make for an amazing conversation. We got a data nerd, we got a fintech nerd, and we're gonna figure out how the whole future is gonna work between the two of you. High expectations. And we got you, we got a nerd nerd. <laughs> yeah, I'm a nerd nerd. That's the best classification of my job I've ever heard.
2: Yeah, and while I'm a former quant, I'm definitely a still current data nerd just want to emphasize
1: yeah 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 <laughs> we mebo and al are investors in in weave chain in omar's company so large caveat but also what more pure excitement can i bring than to get to sort of bring forth the story of this company and the vision that you guys have for data and web3 data and the future where we can all trust each other immensely and we Get rid of these pesky like financial meltdowns. Mm. <laughs> is that a thing that we think we can That'd do? Be nice.
0: Those are not fun.
1: Not fun. I want to start Omar with, with this line from your deck that caught my attention, which is why will web three data take a hundred percent of the market?
2: Yeah, for sure. We always pattern it after HTTPS, which is another technology that took over 100% of the market. And the, the unfortunate thing about interesting security technology is it always starts off as a vitamin. Before it becomes a painkiller and a regulatory requirement, and like HTTPS is that little lock icon represented by that little lock icon in your browser that says yes, this is actually the website that I think it is, and our communications are secure. Now that technology was deployed in 1995, but you know I think the market was less than five percent of all websites through 2010, until you know people realized that with those insecure channels, people couldn't even be in like a Starbucks on Facebook without getting their accounts hacked. And you know that inspired the big players to go and move along. And then in 2013, after the Snowden breach, people realized that everybody was hacking unsecure HTTP feeds from like the NSA in China to even like Verizon and Comcast were illegally injecting stuff into your internet browsing activity. And again, this is that point where it becomes a painkiller. And now it's pretty much a requirement that all websites utilize secure HTTP technology. And you know what we talk about at Weave Chain is that we're going to see the same exact trend for data, where most data flows today are very insecure and not verifiable. And when I talk about Web three data, they are data flows that have these cryptographic guarantees of immutability that you can show that it came from a specific source and that it has been tampered with over time, which would be very useful. You know, in the current financial climate, where suddenly fraud is popping its head up. In in frankly, old school ways, (laughs) except for for, for new school companies. What's
1: an example of a data flow when you say like secured, unsecured data flows?
2: Yeah, for sure. Like, let's take, for example, you know, if a hedge fund is going to go and get a position statement from JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs or even Coinbase or these modern institutions, a lot of times those guys are actually just like putting a CSV file on an FTP server somewhere. And then the hedge fund ingests it into their database. And then the hedge fund goes and passes their database along to, let's say, an auditing firm or makes a statement to to investors. Well, like that's whispered down the lane. You know, there's there's no way that the depositors or auditors can actually validate that this data came from a a trusted source here because it's not signed. The, The way that HTTPS works is that whenever I go and visit a website like Twitter or Google, that little lock icon says... I can validate that this is Twitter, or Google, because I, I can see this certificate that was signed with, you know, their private key, and we can validate it with their public key. And so, you know, for like a Web three financial data flow, we're trying to encourage people to be passing around signed data. And you know, it's like old cryptography. That, that, that's not even including, you know, some of the fancier parts of, of Web three and blockchain technology. But it's a secure data flow in that we know who actually did it using public key cryptography. So my head's
0: in three places at one time here. There's this like correlation between HTTP to HTTPS. And then there's this correlation that I think a lot of people try and draw between web two and web three. There's a lot there that does overlap, right? In the in the Venn diagram of like basic mental models in terms of the way that things flow, like there there's there's some fair statements there, but I think like when you get into the depths of that, it starts to kind of fall apart a little bit. And I, to be honest, even understanding everything you just said in like an academic fashion, still have to take it back a step and be like, wait, what the fuck? Because it is so convoluted in terms of somebody that didn't study computer science or didn't study data. So I guess where my head goes is like, Can you give us a sense of like that that how that analogy of Web two to Web three and HTTP and HTTPS like and I don't even know the right question I mean that's why Eric's actually in charge of this thing and I'm just here to fuck it up but like can you like pull those apart or like help me understand if those are actually even fair analogies now that I've asked the longest question in the history of the United States
2: Yeah for sure again you know it comes down to that example of that lock icon in the browser for me which is just like, as an end user, I want the ability to verify that your claim is accurate. And this is what cryptography is great for, is verifying the accuracy of these things and, and, and sources. And that whispered down the lane example I gave earlier is a situation where you, know, you can't verify a source if it's not signed, if it's just CSV files being passed around to other parties. And let's say, I think Chainlink always says that the old web was based off of paper guarantees where I'm going to go and sign a legal document that says X, Y, and Z, and you're going to take my word for it. But then companies like Enron come around and they invalidate those paper contracts and you know FTX comes along and commits fraud. We're trying to go and say, if you go and have your data flowing on these Web3 rails, or at least inheriting these Web3 properties, you can't do that anymore. The analogy people give is, is Google used to say, don't be evil. Well, well now in Web3, you make it so that you can't be evil so that it's, it's literally impossible to do so again, using cryptography and and those things like the lock icon. So our our expectation is just that you're going to see data activities evolve to the point where you see those lock icons in more places and the potential for fraud diminishes because it literally just couldn't happen.
1: In this example that you're giving us of sort of the financial data moving from an original source into a hedge fund a hedge fund into an auditor how different is this is your the the weave chain vision from what happens now in the sense that like the data doesn't ever leave its initial resting place right it's kind of like a river that's like passing along and people can like peek into it at different times when it suits them i'm struggling to find the right analogy but it's so different than like this game of hot potato where like someone has an isolated time to manipulate the data or change the data or sort or filter or adjust or tweak and then pass pass the potato along and if we're all just kind of assuming that they did it honorably but no one has visibility into the version before the version the version before that or the version before that
2: yeah let's say that a good way to think about it is like if we have a legal contract between all of us and you know one version of it is just to go and say here's the data that we agreed to without signatures well, when you pass that along that hot potato format, the person downstream is like, how how can I know that the person upstream actually agreed to this in the beginning of the situation? And that's what signatures are there for, like old school paper, human signatures, where I'm going to go and match up your cursive <laughs> against other signatures yeah. that, I, that I have of yours. <laughs> We're saying you need to go and add those signatures to data flows, right? That you need to go and, and make it so that downstream, somebody can say, oh, yes, I can actually match this against... JP Morgan's signature to say that yes, they they did do that. Now, like you know, the the subject sort of branches on from from public key cryptography into what we're seeing more recently with Merkle trees and verifiability with with proof of reserves and proof of solvency. And what like Binance has, has recently released, and you know they're not the first. Kraken has this. OKX did it back in 2014. They give a depositor the way to go and check that my balance at this exchange is represented in this portfolio that is solvent that the exchange has published. And it's still using the same idea of signatures and hashes to go and validate that it's part of the whole. But this is a way for, again, an individual, like if I'm an investor at Kraken or Binance, I'm small potatoes. I'm, I'm some nobody way downstream. But I want to go and be able to validate that my bits are safe and secure and represented in a, in a solvent entity. And this is what that Web3 technology n- enables you to go and do.
1: Without having to take the exchange's word for it, because they have maintained this sort of endless, like consistent
2: chain of trusted data. Signed database.
1: Yeah. Chain of trusted data. Chain of trusted
2: data. And, and, you know, the other key thing here is, is that it preserves privacy. If you're talking about an exchange, maybe I want to go and validate that my position is okay, but if you're on that same exchange, you don't want me knowing your activity or your positions, right? We need to do this in a way that we're sharing attestations about a portfolio while not revealing information that, that other parties shouldn't have access to. So when so when we talk about a
0: lot of this, I mean, it. it It sounds to to me as somebody that like was, you know, kind of sitting front row at a community bank, trying to work with fintech startups, having to do due diligence on them, yada, 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 right? Like a lot of this sounds like something I wish I would would have had, but something I'm convinced that I could not have until the entire world is on the blockchain right? So so is that true? Like, does the whole world have to get to this place of Web3 in order for your vision to be able to get executed? Or does it come down to the cryptography? Does it come down to the, the technology that is kind of sitting on a layer above the blockchain that allows you to do this like today in TradFi sort of a thing in the, you know, the rails that we're sitting on right now? Like, how, how what is that
2: disconnect? Uh, it's such a good question. And, and the answer is more often than not, we think that you're gonna be able to show a percentage viability or verifiability for your portfolio that we're hopefully just going to increase over time. That it will start off as a, as a low number and say, look, I still have these CSV files that are being uploaded to my servers from banks that I can make a, a weak attestation about. I don't have this really fancy signed thing that's anchored to the blockchain. And that's gonna be okay. The, the burden is gonna be on these in- institutions to go and, and increase that percentage vi- verifiability. But the first step is just acknowledging that that's something that we want, acknowledging that we want verifiability in these transactions. And it's a situation where we're going to see more activity moving to the blockchain because it's actually a lot easier to verify blockchain transactions, right? If you're saying that your trading activity is done natively on-chain, we can actually see that in the Block Explorer and get signatures from you that, that you own these wallets to show that verifiability the whole way down without changing a thing versus the old school world where we're gonna to have to go and actually get people to upgrade their infrastructures to go and enable the, those more secure attestations. Now, this is another place where we think WeaveChain has a unique edge in that we are not actually trying to move all data flows to the blockchain. We go back to sort of you know what we say the first principles of Web3 data. And what you're actually trying to get is, is the ability to make attestations about your current infrastructure, not rip and replace it with some brand new stuff. So what our nodes do is they go and attach to legacy databases. And we put what we call anchors on the blockchain, which are hashes of data or zero-knowledge proofs of data that you can match up against the data at any moment in time to show that it hasn't been tampered with without having to move all your data over to the blockchain, which is expensive and practical. Nobody is gonna go in there and, you know, let's just say that rip and replace exercises in Web3 have not been successful for the past five years. I think that's why you haven't seen a lot of activity in the enterprise blockchain space. But we think that you can go and leverage blockchain technology in parallel to what you already have there to go and do it. So again, there's a percentage verifiability of a portfolio. The blockchain activity will be super verifiable, you know, instantly. But even the old school stuff, we're going to go and add the, these anchors and, and trust layer two to move it along the, the path.
0: Is there almost some kind of like gamification, or it's almost like the incorrect use of the term game theory? But is there some sort of gamification there, almost, where you're saying, you know, the the and it sounds almost like a confidence interval, right? So like the confidence interval associated with this like CSV file and these 14 other CSV files that are based on this other CSV file that has 18 screenshots in it, our confidence interval is 1% because this is bullshit, right? And then you move it from there into like, oh, okay, we actually like went, verified these screenshots on something that is in some blockchain somewhere. Our confidence interval is now moved up to 35% because this piece by itself, we actually can verify we were able to co-sign on it. Is that kind of the idea? And then eventually you're just like, almost like kind of, you know, moving them up and up and up that ladder sort of a thing until they get to, I don't know. I mean, does 100% verifiability. I mean, I guess that is a thing in this world that we're talking about, but is that kind of the idea is hopefully you're incentivizing them towards this like better place. And then my brain just goes into like, holy shit, regulators should be doing this right now, but we'll get to that but so is that is that a correct is that a
2: correct way of thinking about it you just need to think of a name for the game how about like the world of accountability or something like that you know not not great warcraft Mm. oh yeah there you there you go
0: omar you really you paint a sexy picture there my friend yeah the world of accountability that's that's what's gonna
2: that's that's what gets us out of bed playing the the world of accountability so here's the thing right like everybody is, is now excited about the regulators coming in and saving the day. You know, the the tune has changed over the past six months in in Silicon Valley and the blockchain world where now we're we're really excited about this regulation coming in and turning us all into adults. Let's say before that, you know, what I have found is the best tool for incentivizing people in this world of accountability is money. (laughs) And, you know, your, your example that you gave earlier was very good about, like, how do we describe that confidence interval? Well, people have had that before with credit scores and you know the one of our first use cases for this is actually like not proof of reserves or proof of solvency which a lot of the major exchanges are doing we've been working on a, a use case around proof of custody with you know lenders and, and crypto market makers that let's say before FTX we were living in a very happy world where everybody was making money and there were no defaults and then after FTX blew up suddenly a lot of people that were custody on FTX were defaulting on their loans in a very bad way, so the only way you can resume lending activity is if you go and establish a, a new kind of credit score for these borrowers that is based off of new criteria, like where are you actually custodying your assets? Are you showing that your books are solvent in the case of crazy black swan blowups? You know that appear to be you know flying in flocks these days, and whether it's FTX or SVB or, or, or Signature. You know, it's just sort of there is a new standard that you need to show and a a new form of credit worthiness that we can quantify, that we can showcase and that people can be be sharing with each other without disclosing their trade secrets. Because uh, let me tell you, as an ex-Hedge Fund guy, nobody likes sharing their positions. Nobody likes sharing their strategies or their secret sauce because everybody's trying to rip everybody off eric are you gonna tweet black swans flying in flocks or am i who's gonna who's gonna beat who's gonna
0: win the twitter like race to that fucking amazing quote it's
1: omar's line man uh, oh i know but that's what what
0: i'm saying is which of which of us is stealing it i mean that's a that's a have you said that before omar because that was a hell that was your quotable my friend sorry eric i cut you off but that was damn good
1: no it's it's the new reality it seems like We might need to come up with a new term. I mean, they're, they're, yeah, they're coming so hot and heavy. The black unicorn. Yep. The back-to-back black swans. Mm -hmm. It's bad for everybody but Tlaib. That's a really, a very, like, important input, though, because the crazier this world gets and the more interdependencies. And I remember this being a big part of both the FTX and the SVB stories is everybody like immediately trying to run down all of their holdings, all of their dependencies of like, what else? Oh shit, Celsius holds $3 billion at SVB. Like if they lose that, does that fold? If that folds, what comes next? And so this sort of the proof of solvency is a really, really interesting and important thing against and tracking that whole I don't know, the river of data and dependencies down. Because as an LP in a fund or a user of a bank or any stakeholder in the financial ecosystem, the more you have at stake, the more you need to know about the various risk factors. And if I'm evaluating all my banks or evaluating my investment options as an LP, like I have a strong preference for somebody with the highest verifiability score or with the highest like proof of solvency or the least the most redundancies, the least single points of failure. I mean, it's why you see the, like, who's your accounting, who's your legal, who's your banking, like in all of the decks of a hedge fund. But I think you're going to increasingly see redundancies in those and scores. And
2: so so as an investor, how often do you see that list for a startup that you're about to put money into? Who's your Thank you, Omar. That's (laughs) what I wanted to know. Never happened. to add it to the due
1: diligence checklist. I think it's going to be, you it.
2: have 10 bank accounts. I make it 20. Yeah, Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But really like, you know, I think this is what LPs are going to expect out of their venture capitalists as well in the future. Are you going into this level of diligence and rigor for the companies that you're investing in? And are you keeping tabs on it? Because, you know, again, we talked about this in December with regards to FDX. And it's crazy that it just happened in a non crypto world over, over the past month. But nobody knew where their companies were custodying their assets. You know, so some people told me they actually like in the old days, you didn't want to know. <laughs> it was just sort of like, you know, I won't ask you don't have to tell that kind of situation. I, that's just not going to fly anymore. It's going to be the reason I say it's like a new form of credit worthiness is, is that, you know, if nobody was ever looking at it to date, then we actually have no baseline for what we expect. You know, if you have $5 million in your bank account, is that, a five bank spread okay when each bank is still only insured for two hundred fifty k. We don't necessarily know yet, but I know at this moment in time, people are sick of you know scrambling after these events and you know picking up the phone and calling all of their portfolio companies, and then trusting their word to say that you know we're going to be solvent on Monday. It's just like that's that's not going to fly. I think.
1: Yeah, that's this is what's interesting to me about. When a new technology comes out like this, right, like blockchain or like anything, you can imagine, it seems, what you said at the very beginning is very interesting. It starts out as a vitamin, it ends up becoming a painkiller. Like, why, as soon as it exists, we have to go through this painful, slow adoption curve. But with any imaginable future, it is inevitable that our data should have all of these attributes that you're telling us it can now have, verifiability, provability, like tracked, like it it makes absolute sense to me I, I think we can we will eventually talk about versions of this that are outside finance, but it seems like finance may be the first industry to adopt this kind of through and through is that sort of what you're seeing? I know you serve so. use cases outside of that
2: you know yeah. but let's say we we dipped pretty highly into healthcare data and medical data as well in q3 Q4. And the question is, like, where are we going to go and see mass adoption of of Web3 data flows? We think it's where the data is most valuable. And, you know, pharmaceutical companies pay a ton of money for this data to go and research new drugs that then go and build, you know, billion-dollar businesses. Financial data is also very, very valuable. And in, in the short term, there's just a larger problem space there, right? It's not as much about the opportunity. It's that we have been suffering for the past six months through crisis after crisis that's related to, you know, is this financial data reliable and is it going to allow us to go in and, you know, build second level operations on top of it, because we can trust that it's legitimate. So go ahead.
1: Is is the, is the pressure in that coming from, I, I mean, I can't imagine it's coming from the funds or the companies. Is that coming more from the LPs, the investors, is it coming from regulators? Like who who has the most need of the painkiller in the finance market? Because it's a it's a complex market, and there's a lot of different stakeholders who who would all want this, but for very different reasons, and I imagine with different intensities.
2: Yeah. So I'll go back to that example of the lender. In that case, it was their LPs that said, "You clearly were not doing enough diligence on your borrowers. You went and let." Something like FTX happened, and you had no idea where your borrowers were custodying their assets, and then they blew up and you had no recourse. So how are you going to do better next time to give us assurance that we can go and give you our money and that you can still go and generate these 11 to 15% returns by, by borrowing it out in a good way? And again, you know, the money is like the best incentive in the world in a capitalist society. So you follow the money and figure out who's going to make it demands based off of what they're going to give money. And, and, and that's a, a really interesting use case that will then further the rest of the space, right? This, this is sort of like, we're not the painkiller side of things. Let's, let's say that there's a very real problem where people are, are suffering that needs to be dealt with. And I think it, it's going to be in the, this position first, but the regulations coming, right? Like I think we, we did that webinar a couple of weeks ago on, on the subject with the, the head of crypto for PwC in Hong Kong and, and a DeFi fund and, and some guys in accounting. And it was really interesting just seeing that it seems like every two weeks you're having a new notification from the Fed or the FDIC or, or somebody else who, you know, what was it that the New York Department of Financial Services is, is trying to go and pioneer here and,
0: do you guys want to hear something? Kind of sorry, sorry to cut you off, Omar. But I live this just dropped, and it's exactly what you're talking about. So I'm going to hit us with like a little bit of, you know, just in the midst of this kind of thing. So the CFTC, which is obviously the, and I'll break it down here because it's not my podcast, so I can't assume that everybody <laughs> know. I can't assume that everybody knows all the acronyms. So the, C- the CFTC is the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which because of the convolution and confusion about how to regulate different coins and how to consider certain things, equities or commodities or whatever the fuck, CFTC gets involved in a lot of regulation when it comes to Web3, crypto, whatever the hell you want to call it. And they recently put together, they've been putting together this technology advisory committee, and they finally announced the people that are on it. And actually, Eric, there's a couple of our, well, at least one of our mutual friends on it. And some really like kind of hopeful names to the point of what Omar was just saying. So there's the VP of Global Policy at Circle, not super surprising considering the SVB situation and that $3 billion that they had there that you just referred to, Eric. There's somebody from Paradigm. This is kind of a fun one, Eric. Ben Milne, founder and chief executive officer of Braille. So was the was the founder of Dwala. And, and on and on and on. There's people in here from Espresso Systems, from Claro's, from AWS, just across the board, actually very, so Michael Shaloff, the CEO of Fireblocks. So this is like there. There's a lot of like TradFi people in there, but it is it shows you the the CFTC and I think these broader you know kind of the rest of these acronyms are also starting to actually fucking listen to the Omars of the world and listen to the <laughs> the people that are doing the real work and have been you know on a soapbox screaming about this for years and now that the the to your point we're shifting from vitamin into painkiller like oh. Now let's listen. So it, it is like, again, sorry to interrupt, but like, at such a point in time that all of a sudden I'm just getting like exactly what you're talking about slack to me from Money 2020 people. How so insane just is it
2: though? proof. Like, when in your I mean, life it's have you ever seen all these technologists and like entrepreneurs trying to work with the federal government and saying, please, let's figure this out together? <laughs> like, come in, give us regulation, you know, add some sanity to, to this insanity. That. Well the irony is like right after SBF is like
0: I want to be the one that helps us figure out regulation right and then just like everything blows up and then everybody else that like actually has a good point of view on it comes in to try and actually solve the fucking problem But it's a whole, I mean, it's a whole new world. It's, uh, and the regulators want to listen. I talked to, uh, yesterday I was on the phone with a ex-chairperson of the FDIC and just like hearing the perspective that she has about the way that she just takes calls to learn now. And she's an ex-chairperson. You know, the person that's in there now is not quite as much of a spring chicken and is not exactly wanting to learn. But it's, you know, anyway, it's hopeful. It's hopeful. And it's fucking crazy to your point. There is
2: a strong desire to learn out there. I'll say that, you know, like our our technology, we're we're really proud that we're on the cutting edge of of all these different things. But more often than not, our our first calls with customers are about education. Like we we went and got on the phone with like all the executives of, of PwC Hong Kong to just go and teach them about like the different areas they need to be watching, whether it's like, a Web3 data flow, or a token, which are completely separate things. You know, everybody just sort of blends everything into this massive Web3 bucket right now, but these are very separate concepts. And that's a very good thing. You know, it's, let's say, a healthier attention than, let's say, some of the speculative activity that's been common in Web3 to date. People want to learn, what is this technology? Why does it make things better? How do we go and prevent these issues? And that will then lead to uh, investment of political capital and, and physical capital and, and, and good solutions for it.
1: I mean, I think there's there's two pressures, which is rare. It's like one of the things we're talking about is like the regulators. This, is, this technology is the regulator's best friend. This is going to save them so much time, so much effort. And I think, Omar, you had some collateral that was like, this enables like consistent real-time auditing and regulation and compliance. Like this lets the government do its job to which is to protect us from bad actors in a much more scalable defensible way for less which is great yeah, the best. and at the same time there's this pressure the the capitalist pressure which is that anybody who adopts sort of being held to a higher standard of verification and solvency and and proof like don't trust verify of like i have already self verified and I can consistently produce these returns in these ways and stay solvent and stay like, you will never have to worry about me. You won't lose sleep. Like you will be automatically notified if I breach any of these service level agreements, like put your money with me, right? Like that. there's no better pitch and that's a possible pitch right now. And it's a huge advantage to whoever picks up those capabilities first and takes them to market. I
2: was just talking with a, a new derivatives exchange for DeFi today. That's going to have a stable coin as part of their platform and this is a startup that's less than 6 months old you know preparing for a mainnet launch this summer and that's exactly what we were talking about i was like you guys should go and have verifiable financial data by default when you launch your product as as a v1 to convince people that you are going to be an honorable steward of their capital and and this isn't something that's you know if you're a startup you have negative time <laughs> your priority queue is a nightmare and yet this is worth doing from the gate because it's just like the strong foundation that we think will, will give people confidence in, in these really innovative products of the future.
1: Especially in an industry where rug pulls are the meme and almost the expectation. Like,
2: Yeah, no, it, it, we're, we're entering a new generation, I think, of, of Web3 companies that not say anything about, against PFPs. Eric, as you know, I was the, the founder of the CryptoPoops.com back in 2021, some of the finest shit on the internet, but you know, we, we, we were trying to go out there and, and say very explicitly, you know, you can go and buy crypto poop JPEGs at, at, your, at your own <laughs> peril, right? That, those were the times. It, it was 2021. We launched on uh, 420. It was lots of fun, right? This is a very different kind of technology. We're we're talking to a very different kind of of startup in Web3 right now that's very deliberately trying to do serious things in an adult fashion. And, you know, you can have your poop on the side, but, like, your financial data should not be shit. (laughs) Your financial data should be rock solid and held to a higher standard than it ever has been before.
0: Omar, you have no idea, but you just got on stage at (laughs) Money2020. Like... (laughs) (laughs) I just that that if you do that 30 seconds and then just talk about verifiable financial data, you're in, man. That's all I needed
1: to hear. Both (laughs) the most confusing and impressive resume I've ever heard.
2: It's been a fun time being a web 3 (laughs) builder, that's for sure. Uh, Omar can do it all, yeah.
0: Investors investing in founders that ship and shit, anyway. Uh Too good. So I think there was a few, there was a couple things I was going to say there. I lost one of them. I wrote down, so I remember that, but there was something else that I was going to take us to. I'll, I'll go to the thing that I wrote down because I forgot the other one. So to your, to your point about this being a regulator's best friend, when we were describing that venture capital due diligence example previously. And the thing about my experience that I was talking about before doing due diligence on startups at a bank, which for us was not, I mean, it was about making the investment, but pretty much it was just like, I, I had the, you know, I had the right to make the investment. If I wanted to make the investment, it wasn't, it was 50K checks in the seed startups. Like there's nothing really to check there, but it was a lot of screenshots. It was a lot of, you know, just, it was a lot of things that even the data that I did feel confident in, I was like, okay, this is true two weeks ago right and i think something that regulators run into a lot is these like every six month cycles or these yearly cycles or and this again not comparing at all sbf and ftx to svb like what happened with svb was a risk management thing not a fucking fraud but to be able to to be able to see a data flow and a financial model as it moves through time I think is the other thing here that we don't talk about as much, right? We talk about like, oh, we really want to verify if that's true. And it's like, of course we want to verify that's true, but we also want to verify that's true today and then in 20 minutes and then in an hour and then in two days, right? Because I think one of the things that we also don't talk about is that like SBF could have put $10 billion in an account, take a picture of that account or like have somebody do take a snapshot, have somebody, or even to like actually have like some sort of plaid connection, get in there, check. Okay, the funds are there in, in USD, right? And then just fucking float it out the next day, right? And like what they'll check again in six months. And by then he will have already made off it back in or something like that, right? So I, I guess I'm just curious about like one, how you think about that, kind of where you see that use case being most important. And also, I just felt like I
2: needed to say it out loud because we just hadn't covered it yet. So there's that That's too. That's beautiful. And Eric, <laughs> you touched on it briefly earlier where you're talking about like consistent real-time auditing and compliance. And, you know, th- this is one of the f- things that we're really proud of at WeaveChain is that we go and enable, let's say web three grade synchronization between databases so that you're not going and like downloading data to a CSV file, putting it on an FTP server, and then hoping that it actually lands in the target database as desired. People always talk about like distributed ledger technology as opposed to a blockchain. And the problem that we see is that, again, it would require all these institutions to rip and replace their existing infrastructure and build it on a a blockchain, which I just don't think is going to happen. So instead, let's say that you have FTX with their internal database of all their positions. And then you have their auditor. I think it was Arminino in that case. We want to just go and synchronize those positions in real time. And we're talking with, with auditors and, and fund administrators about how we can go and set up those systems so that you know they shouldn't just have these monthly or yearly snapshots of the data. It should always be synchronized. And that's different from when they want to make those attestations. right? Maybe you still only want to make your attestations weekly or monthly or, or annually, but let's just deprecate that whole manual part of the process with people sitting there trying to go and make sure that the, the fields match every time and, and identifying these discrepancies. It's like a horrible process that wastes everybody's time and is super inefficient. And once we have that live synchronization of data, then we can go and have what what's my favorite part is a cosine calculation by these auditing entities. So if FTX is going to uh, make a statement that their books are solvent as of this date and time, well, if the auditing agency has the exact same positions, they should do the same calculation and say, yes, we attest that this is correct, right? We are willing to to stand behind both the data and the calculation methodology here and give some sort of guarantee to depositors who are, you know, especially today are just scared.
0: I mean, is that almost like a mathematical truth that can be confirmed on a second by second basis, like kind of what, what you're talking about there sounds like something that it's, I mean, <laughs> stable coins, a terrible analogy, but like one should track the other, right? Like in terms of, is, is that like a human de- at this point, obviously that's a human thing of like, okay, we co-sign this, but in the future, could that algorithmically, or is that just what you're saying? And I'm not quite there yet of just like algorithmically, they track each other. Like it's just constant latter,
2: right? It, it, it is all programmatic. I use the word, word signature very loosely because I am a data nerd, as discussed earlier. But for me, it's it's always a programmatic signature. So, you know, it's like you, you can go in like, you know, again, not a, a ink signature, but you can actually go and, and add cryptographic signatures to PDF documents that say, we have issued this PDF at this moment in time. And then in that signature, you can include all kinds of metadata that says that this calculation was performed by this exchange and this auditor, and, you know, this third entity over here. And you can trust, you know, all three of these guys got the same answer to their their math problem, and they use the same input data. We call it a a computational lineage. And it's one of those, like, far out concepts that I think is not common today. But our bet is that within the next five to 10 years, it's going to be as common as that lock icon. And you're just going to go in and judge all these calculations that have been done in a way that can't be verified in the future because it's instantaneous, right? It's not like it's going to go and add more time to the process. It actually shrinks down the time that the process happened. We just need a little bit of investment in technology today to do it. When you,
0: that PDF, I just had like a, oh, moment over here. When you describe the PDF, I feel I feel like sometimes I'm slow on the uptake, but when you describe the PDF example, that, I'm like, oh, we're not that far away. Like, we're we're like some CFOs and risk people making some decisions and signing some contracts with the right companies. (laughs) But we're other than that, like we're not that. Like we could do this tomorrow, right? In terms of like the technology and everything that we kind of have in the world today, it just takes buy-in.
2: Now it's the the scariest thing, right? It's not like we're always talking about fringe, bleeding-edge technology. A lot of this stuff is technology has been around for 20 years but security technology always starts off as a vitamin, right? It's that those, those first 15 years of HTTPS only being used for credit card transactions online until there was a real moment of pain for the market. And we're in that moment of pain right now for financial data, right? It's, it's not trustworthy. People don't believe books are solvent. And hopefully this is the, the inspiration that people need to go and make that upgrade. It's, it's almost hard for me to
0: not just scream from the rafters that regulators need to implement this you know yesterday and by hard for me not to like wait till october in vegas and money 2020 to wait but like it's like good lord people this is (laughs) i mean if the technology's here and you know we're kind of at a point where we all agree with it from a political or philosophical perspective like it's it's a moment this is the moment to
2: strike it It feels like especially politically
1: there's nobody politically who's pro-financial fraud, so far as I'm aware. <laughs>
2: it's a shaky position to hold.
1: And so this should should be a multi bipartisan issue to reduce financial fraud, the cost of regulation, the overhead involved, and invest in yeah, this this real-time proactive, like consistent self-regulation seems so obvious to me and like such an obvious need. This, this is something that I feel like everybody could agree with and everyone in the market should be willing to embrace right like this this lowers their overhead too. the, the nobody hates regulation the the principle of regulation or the outcome of regulation which is like safety it's the process of minutiae and managing and sending the spreadsheets and manipulating the data and matching the fields and all of this sort of like time and investment overhead it's it's if we make it easy for companies to participate in that regulation, which we've chain does, it's easier for everybody. They're saving time and money too. And the regulators can do their jobs better, faster, and cheaper.
2: We're hopeful that we can go and build these case studies right now that showcase people that were organically incentivized to do the right thing in a way that's easy, like you described. And, and that, that hopefully that will go and inspire these regulators to just say, oh, there's the right answer. Let's go and move towards that and make that a standard.
1: Is is that what happened in HTTPS? I'm not super familiar with that backstory.
2: Effectively, but it, you know, HTTPS <laughs> started as something that was mostly used for like when you were entering your credit card transactions online. So you know, the old eBay and PayPal websites would have that HTTPS on them. The problem was it slowed down that part of the process right? Security technology is not as fast as insecure technology. The, you know, the time it takes to go and, and do those cryptographic math problems is, is not great for the user experience. Thankfully, computers are, you know, getting faster, you know, 2x every couple of years kind of things that the Moore's Law scenario. And so now it's, it's kind of transparent for the user experience. And that's why, you know, in, in 2010, the exploit that Facebook and Twitter had to deal with was called Fire Sheep. And it was the one that made it so you couldn't be in a, in a Starbucks on Facebook without getting hacked.
1: Hate it when my sheep are on fire. Uh,
2: the worst. So, worse. you know, those guys went and sort of got ahead of the curve and, and started implementing before there were, it was a real issue. And, and then, you know, now it's one of those things where like, to, I think it's to be SOC2 compliant. You might need to actually have an HTTPS certificate for every activity on your website
1: and if you don't chrome is like danger danger like unsafe website mm-hmm. so it's just a yeah it's a change in expectations of the user and the the context of the environment as well
2: yeah it's so when enough people get hacked then they start to complain that they want this as a default and to be warned if it's not the case yeah
1: it's really a great analogy the sheep part no, the sheep, the sheep as a part of the HTTPS story, like it's a, it's a it, the, and the timeline is interesting too. I think like it's one of those things where you f- forget how recent that was, really in in the scope of internet time. Like that's wild, and how
2: pervasive it is now. To your point earlier, Zach, it always starts with a few people that are shouting off mountaintops that are just like, guys, this is the path. Please, please follow it. Do the right thing. And unfortunately. It is not that easy. It is not
1: that easy. And, and those who have listened to my previous podcast with Zach know that his role is to be the neck that turns the head of fintech. Mm. <laughs> I believe is the analogy that he used just to stack up some more analogies.
0: We're stacking the analog- analogies and metaphors on this one. I feel like, I feel like we're going to have to do a count at the end as to how many we, we absolutely yeah. butchered. Can't wait to come back to poop. <laughs> It's gonna be great. <laughs> exactly. We're we're all we're all we're all really trying to circle back to that. One of the things I was, I mean, this is like correlated and not correlated, but because we're recording this so close to the SVB situation, like I guess there's some pieces of this that chainalysis would be able to. A lot of this seems like stuff that chainalysis can do in retrospect, right? It's like it's stuff that they can do in the rear view. and I think maybe just like. I don't know, maybe they have some plumbing that gives them some ability to do some piece of this In the in, as it stands today, but I don't think they're thinking about it like that. And as I was thinking about wires, I think all probably all three of us have sent a wire in our time. I Eric and I are at least Eskimo investors and one, two companies together. So we've sent at least two wires. There's a, probably enough people that fucked up trying to send, well, granted, all of the wires got canceled up until actually, they got sent out on Monday. But the amount of wires even on Monday that probably got sent to the wrong place. And just thinking about like the tracking of funds. And like, this is not necessarily like the, you know, the use case that we were been talking about through this whole thing. But just as I was thinking, like I was talking to a founder yesterday that literally his Wi Fi went down, he had to go to a Starbucks and wire millions of dollars out of out of SVB into another account somewhere else from a fucking Starbucks. So it was also our HTTPS, like Starbucks black sheet <laughs> store. Like glad that happened then, not now. But uh, it's just like, but between the fact that we still have wires, like all of this comes, I mean, the the amount of money that is probably flowing up and down to community banks, up to the big three, like it, just the, the, the f- what we would know and the level of confidence that we could instill in the financial industry right now. And in the banking industry, if we were able to have a real time view of how deposits were flowing around the world, like, good Lord, would that be helpful right now? And all of it's, you know, in retrospect, like it's all a post settlement. And even then it's really hard to have that full view.
1: Zach, maybe you can, between you and Omar, maybe you can enlighten me because I I know that I share Omar's pessimism of rip and replace of everything, especially in FinTech, right? Like those rails and databases and stuff are so old and the way all that information flows today is so difficult to change for a bunch of good and not good reasons. So is how true is it, I suppose, that we are adding a capability to that data without really having to replace the skeleton that all of finance in the US is built on today?
2: Yeah, I'm biased. I think it's way easier than you think, precisely because it's, at least databases have been designed that it's very easy to read data from them. So, you know, if you can go and, and maintain those anchors, it's a coordination exercise. It, it's about saying, here's my infrastructure, I am going to add these cryptographic guarantees of immutability. And then when I share it with somebody else, even if it's in a legacy format, I can go and point back to those anchors to show that nothing has been tampered with. So you know, it's like every financial stack. Let, let's see, if you're going at a, at a even a, a small regional bank, I'm sure they have 140 different pieces of software they're running inside that institution to to make things go. This piece of software 141 is not going to be the one that breaks the camel's back, as long as it lets you know pieces of software 1 to 140 continue operating <laughs> the way they have been. Right? There needs to be a commitment to, for these institutions that says, yes, we we want this. This is the future that we want. We are going to go and put our money where our mouth is and make this happen for ourselves to set an example and, and you know, make it so that the, the entire community is, is pursuing these things instead of realistically, like the, the prisoner's dilemma that there's, that's out there right now where everybody's like, well, if I'm not gonna be forced to do it, I'm not gonna be the one that goes out on a limb and, you know, puts my time and capital at, at risk when it's not a regulatory requirement. Yeah, I don't I don't know if this is the right
0: I I agree with Omar and I think that I'm not I th- I think that my knowledge about the actual workings of the payment rails, returns, the the lack of webhooks, like all of that, like I, I know a lot of its failings. I don't know enough to say to give you a really good answer about that. But my my gut and like what I would without the technical education saying, Omar I'm really cares about your perspective, is that probably our only way out of the tech debt that we're in right now is to add more tech debt. Like the only way to like get out of the spaghetti is to make more spaghetti almost, but we just like have to think deeply about the way that that spaghetti is structured, you know, like to your point on 140 to 141, I think it's just like 141 and 142 need to be 10X better then 1 through 140 and they also like potentially need to wrap 1 through 140 right like 141 needs to be like the aggregation layer uh la, you know stratecary kind of vibe situation um to be able to actually have any of this get solved. So yeah, I I agree. I don't, I don't think that like most community banks can even get their head wrapped around the idea of how they're going to implement Fed now when it finally comes out. And finally they gave an announcement date on when it's coming out, but like, is you know, these, they don't have CTOs. They don't, you know, they're like you, it's, they're just doing whatever FIS feeds them. So yeah, I think it's, I think we got to go deeper, deeper into the hole to get out of the hole.
2: Yep. You know, I'll, I'll say this on the the Rails scenario. You are seeing more transactions than have ever been done previously in the history of mankind being done on Web3 Rails, whether that's RippleNet or in like interbank processes with that are built on Corda. It's growing. It's just, you know, when the growth can be 10x every year for, you know, 10 years and still be 1% of the market kind of thing it's still tiny as a fraction of, of all financial transactions. I just don't think that trend is going anywhere. I, I think you know the Im- institutions that have gone and implemented improved rails for the, the, the payments themselves are never going back. It's just how do you go convince those shops that don't have a CTO to do this thing, which is particularly complex, especially in a time where everybody is, is kind of freaked out about the technology. We were talking earlier about how one of the most important things for us to do is to be educating our prospective customers and just other people in the, in the space. And the reality is that most people understand very little about what's happening in web three. It looks like pictures of poop more than it looks like, you know, yeah. real <laughs> financial systems yep. and, and, and upgrades to technology, especially when you see these crashes and it's a horrible thing to say, but one of the interesting things that, that's showing up in, in all our chats this past week is like, Hey, look, banks are failing that are not crypto. <laughs> You know you don't have to beat crypto for for a whole project to to implode, even if it's you know a hundred and seventy five billion dollar bank it's look finance is hard there's some crazy things that happen out there, and you know it's we're we're not in a move fast and break things world. it's just things are hard,
0: yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> the... <laughs> it's it's so funny to me to think about like the world of i and i try and separate them the crypto world and the web3 world but like to think about the the crypto-ish world being like hey look the TradFi banks fail too is like (laughs) it's dark have you opened a fucking history book like no shit (laughs) Of course, that is, that is how the system works. Like, yes, that, and that's why we have the FDIC. And that's why we have everything that we have. And if we went to this, like, supposedly utopian version of the world that you want us to go to, it ain't much better, motherfuckers. Like, it is scary. It is scary. It is not, you don't want to live in a world without regulation. And the, as you were talking, the thing I was thinking is like, that there's, The the irony of a lot of this is that there's like this gray market of regulatory ideas, I think, that we don't talk about enough, which is that regulators signal a lot and don't dictate much right? It's very rare. The regulator is going to be like, you fucking, you got to have this. If you don't have this, we're shutting you down. That is like, for the most part, they will never do that. The only way they're going to shut you down is if you get into a risk management oriented situation where there's a run on the bank and yada, yada, yada. Otherwise, if it's not in, you know, a situation that actually is systemic, where they're going to do that, they're just going to, they're going to fine you to hell, right? They're just going to add zeros to the fines and just keep going in that direction. But they will hint right and that's that's the thing here and i think it, like the thing that we saw even today there was news about so along with the svb failure eric i imagine you're a listenership would probably have been paying attention to the signature bank failure because a lot of clearing of crypto, a lot of off-ramps of the world of crypto went into signature bank. And signature bank is also going through this auction process. And according to the there's two sides to the story right now that's pretty interesting. One side is the FDIC saying, who wants to buy signature? And no, you don't need to divest from the crypto business to buy signature. And then Everybody on the street, everybody that is not writing from a perspective of the FDIC, where that says that on their LinkedIn is like anybody that buys signature has to shut down the whole crypto business. Like that is the that is the gossip to the point where I believe it completely because the only people that are saying the opposite are, is the FDIC, and I think they have to say that because they're not allowed to tell people how to run their banks right? So there's this like, they're they're hinting and hinting and hinting. And I guess this whole diatribe, this rant is leading me to one thing, which is, I wonder if what we're talking about here is going to be something that is ever actually, maybe not ever, but in the short to medium term, even medium long, really not long, long, that's the one I'm excluding. Is this going to be mandated? Or is this one of those gray market you should do it or else you're not a good bank sort of things, right? And that's the wrong way. It's not a gray market thing, but you know what I mean? It's just unspoken Unspoken expectation. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of that, Omar? I'm curious. I I don't have a great answer. You know, it it was really interesting having gone through the FTX scenario for crypto back in, in, in November and seeing like this flurry of interest and activity and doing things right and then honestly, seeing it fade a little bit into like January, February of this year as like narratives change and, and new fires arose. And now it's ignited again following all, all these local bank failures. Like, is this going to be the time where it, it, the, the interest is maintained? We think so because it's so much more widespread. But I'm not sure if it's going to be the regulators that force it. You know, I'll just give an example of some regulatory activity that happened over the past couple of months. So, You know, the SEC went and effectively shut down Kraken's staking business. And, you know, when Gensler went and did that, Hester Peirce came out the day after and and issued a dissenting opinion saying, this was not the right approach to going and doing this. We should not be, you know, establishing policy by enforcement. We should be establishing policy with guidance ahead of time and working with with these companies to go and, and do so. They did something, though, like, you know, is is like, I I don't support that activity, but, you know, they were trying to go and make moves that they think are helping investors and trying to further things. But I don't know what the approach is going to be for the regulation that's related to, you know, preventing these kind of situations like SVB and and these other banks. It it really takes people that are are sort of deeper into the machinery of, of government, I think, than you know, a humble technologist like myself, <laughs> I, I know how we can go and, and, and fix problems from a technological perspective. But politics is a completely different beast. It's, it's not always about just having, you know, right answers or, th- or things like that.
0: That's, I mean, but to be honest, that's what scares me about this whole thing. Like what scares me the most is the fact that the people that are capable of solving these problems, the, the, the humble technologists, like Eric and I have a good friend Dawes. I think, I think Redmond Dawes, the CEO of Triple Blind is very I, much in this too. I introduced them. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Just, cool. Yeah. yeah, I yeah. So this, I mean. Last week as well. He's oh, nice. the fucking man. I mean, there are few brains on earth like that of and Dawes and the people that he brings around him, like just very rare. And I think he's one that kind like can, you know, can get in those rooms and do that a little bit, but I mean, I don't think he likes it, you know, and I don't I don't think that's what it gets him out of bed in the morning. And I mean that's what scares me is like the people that have the answers, the people that know how to build the technology don't have that same put on the blue suit and go be a banker on Capitol Hill and get what you want out of it because it leads to, you know, some big bonus for you, you know?
1: But that's why I'm I'm glad we have the the capitalist incentive too, right? Like I I think something Omar and I talk about a fair amount is like, what does distribution going to look like in, in Web3 and of crypto, right? I think there's a lot of people who expect the killer app to be like a, a game or a, you know, a wallet or NFT drops or something like NBA top shots. And I think we've Chained is really interesting because it's so much more, it's like the B2B SaaS channel of like, of a crypto adoption of, of web three adoptions. Like the future is actually slow, methodical partnerships that help businesses win, and gain an advantage and move us closer to this like 100% adoption of like data with Web3 capabilities. And who owns most of the data in the world? It's businesses, like managing giant ass databases. And this is I, I think it's an interesting, I think this is a really interesting view for like what Web3 adoption truly looks like. And it's like a trenches enterprise sales battle which is totally not new, right? Like this happens all the time, every day. We're really good at this
2: now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think a lot of people think that like Web3 adoption is gonna look like everybody having like a MetaMask wallet on their computer and like, you know, trading poop and monkeys and stuff like that. And I I am not of that camp. Like I, I really think that it's gonna be more similar to this HTTPS adoption thing, where suddenly people are just gonna see lock icons, right? on these different data flows. Like you're going to perform some financial transaction in an app and it will say, you know, this was anchored to Ethereum or Polygon or something like that. And is a secure financial transaction, or you're going to see that like, yeah, this data point that, that, you know, your, your personal health information that you just shared in, in this application is being stored in a, in a way that is using the highest grades of, you know, cryptography and will not be shared without your consent. Th- things of like that, that aren't going to make the user experience worse. They're just going to add that stamp of approval that says that we're doing things in a better way.
1: And, and it doesn't change. It doesn't require a user to change behavior mm-hmm. at all. Exactly it's, right.
2: It's I want to do what I do today more securely with more confidence.
1: Right? Yeah.
0: I mean, t- to me, it feels like that I mentioned Fed now earlier, like, Uh, To me, like the most exciting part about this conversation and about actually where we're getting to because of a lot of the bullshit falling out from under us, like as much as it sucks and as much as, you know, there's hard parts about kind of the quelling of the herd, like we're finally getting to a point where these use cases are (laughs) worth discussing, but really hard to see. Right, and it feels like this next wave of innovation, and I can't believe I just said the term wave of innovation, but the next wave of innovation is going to be invisible and it is going to be way more meaningful than any of the shit that was hyper visible, right? Just like it's gonna be extrapolated away. And this is like, finally is my answer. Like FinTech started like 12 years ago with like putting lipstick on a pig, right? It started with like the rails fucking suck and but so does the UI. So let's make the UI a little bit better. And finally, you know, on this journey, we're getting to the point where we're actually changing the thing that I think we all got Got into fintech to change which is like the efficiency of it right and like the more efficient this whole thing becomes the more we can bank the underbank the more we can do all of these things that we want to do and the more that the world is actually a just fucking place so well,
2: now you have <gasps> t- glad you're here omar <laughs> yeah well now you have a tweet that i'm gonna rip off he has the idea that the next wave of innovation will be invisible is a beautiful concept Oh,
0: that's already caught. That's well, it's not copywritten. You can definitely steal it, but it's definitely already it's it's on a staging server for the Money Twenty Twenty website for our call for content this year. So it's it's yeah yeah yeah. it's it's it's. it's, (laughs) We'll we'll get you in there, man. We'll get you. I mean, this the the (laughs) this this conversation has been like the definition of validating so much of the research, and we'll just like work every year. I basically have to like write a new story for the show, or not I, Mm -hmm. but like my team and I have to write a new story for the show and it's like prognosticating about what the fuck finance is going to do in the next 12 months and that i was supposed to write that coming off of ftx and going into this svb situation so i'm just pulling everything out of my ass and like the things that i am clear on is like okay infrastructure change and trust and like this conversation hit on both
2: of those really strongly so i'll i'll just t- Harp on one bit there, so you know one of our—I think it's actually our slogan for the accountable software—is don't trust, verify. And remember, is it's you want verifiability and everything. Trust implies that it's kind of blind. Like I'm going to be okay with you because you're a reputable party because you know you're Sam Sam Bankman-Fried and have crazy hair or something like that. I want to be able to verify <laughs> that stuff. I think it's actually an old Russian proverb originally, but it's a very different mindset, right?
1: Yeah. And I will go, I will add to that, which is something that I said recently. It's like, don't trust, but verify. And don't trust anyone who won't let you verify. Fucking A. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. If they won't verify, there's a fucking reason. And you should default to not trusting them. 100%
0: or if they take too long to let you verify if they're not willing to, you know, if they need to go back back there and make the hamster, you know, run a little bit faster on the
2: fucking wheel to get it to do what they needed to do. Like, that's also not great. I think we need to start holding people to a higher standard, right? I think it used to be seen as something that was like impolite to say, oh, I want to go and verify these things. Like, what, you don't take me at my word? It's like, no, this the better thing for everybody to do is to not take each other at our word going forward. And it's not about a lack of trust. It's that verifiability across the the, the board prevents problems, right? It it makes it harder to have the, these issues because there's gonna be a bad actor, you know. Like I'll give you a weird analogy on this one, but it's like I'm in my mid-30s and you know, friends are getting divorced these days. It's like, you know, people are getting ready for round two. And when you're in your late 20s and everybody's getting married, it's like, oh, well, there's no way any of these situations ever going to go bad, right? We're all our best friends. Like, you know, no, nobody needs prenups and all that stuff. And the reality is statistics are unfortunately honest, and a lot of people will get divorced over time. And you never want to bring that conversation up when you're early in a relationship. But at the same time, it's like, oh, man, you know, it's hard, hard to fight math. So verifiability is a good thing that we should be promoting for each other, not as a way to say, I don't trust you. But as a way to say, this is how we actually build healthier relationships.
1: And that what this technology fundamentally does is make verifiability really, really cheap and easy and low cost and low overhead, right? So like, why wouldn't, if the reason to not verify was expense or awkwardness or discomfort before, like, it's basically free now, why would we not all want it, right? And get it and deserve it and put it forth if we are as honest as we all say we are. It's
2: one of the value propositions that we say to these auditors and fund administrators. We are going to go and deprecate your CSV FTP upload process. We are going to go and just make that a thing of the past, so that you know you're going to go and save 100 band hours per audit that you're doing, and that's going to enable this better standard of data. That's going to make your processes more trustworthy to get, to give investors confidence and, and depositors confidence.
1: I, I think it's amazing that we are like basically done with this podcast and spent the entire time on like the proof side and none on the data economy side. Like, let alone the fact that there's value, huge value to like, there's revenue to be earned from every database, almost every database in business. I'm curious, like what your, what your sort of prioritization of that is, like who you think is coming first with, with some of the, like who the data economy is most meaningful to, because that's the other thing is it's not just let me turn my database, like let me allow access to my database for verification. It's also let me allow access to my database. Privately, securely in place for vendors who can then monetize and pay me access for that data too.
2: You got it. And you know the, the analogy we get there is that like you know today I think everybody has just sort of acquiesced to the fact that we are the product for most services. Like if you if you don't know what the product is or what's being sold, you're, you're the product and you're being sold kind of thing. And I actually just came from the NextMed conference in San Diego. Where there were so many brilliant people talking about the future of healthcare and, and how they're they're going to go and revolutionize legacy processes that haven't been changed in, in, in 30 or 40 years, and one of those is actually how patient data is is shared with researchers. You know, pharmaceutical companies ha- have a bad name, but the rea- realistically, they save lives. They go and build the drugs that go and 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 allow us to live in, into our 80s versus you know the 50 year life expectancies from from 100 years ago. And, you know, back in 2014, there was a company, IMS Health, that went to hospitals and said, we can go and anonymize all of your patient data and then go and sell it to big pharma companies. And you won't even have to ask patients for their consent for that. And they sold $2.6 billion worth of people's healthcare data without ever asking. And, you know, it's kind of crazy, but like the end result is people got, you know, these new medications and, and things of that nature. But that's kind of weird that, you know, my healthcare data would be, you know, sold by this broker without including me in the loop. And a lot of the companies that we work with are really excited about this idea that let's go and include users in the value chain. It's like that old A16Z chart where you know the difference between Web 2 and Web 3 is that in Web 2, the value is almost all towards like the investors and the builders and very little towards the users. Let's flatten that out. And let's actually give the users part of the value of these economies. And so we work with companies like Genobank and Regular Health and we're chatting with a team over at Data Lake who has a model that they call consent to earn. So I'm not going to go and give you rewards for playing these games or, or you know walking around and things like that. I'm going to go and ask you for your consent to use your medical data for research purposes. And if you give me your consent, we're going to go and make sure that you get rewarded for that passively with no activity on your part. And it's not actually changing most processes. It's still going to be you know, somebody in the middle that's going and working with pharmaceutical companies to to enable this data to be available for research, but it's being open and transparent about it and saying we are going to go and and show you from from day one how this is happening and, and what's going on and make sure that you're okay with it and not just doing it without your, your say so. And so, you know, at We Team what we do is we we go and give data the security properties first. We make it so that it has this lineage so that you can see how your data is being used across all these different sectors. And then we go and enable data economies to exist on top of it, where payments can happen from a researcher to a data broker and trickle down to the users themselves. And we think it's gonna happen for, for all data sets, but again, we're starting in finance and, and health tech because we think those are the most valuable data sets in the world and, and really exciting economies exist around them already.
0: I didn't, this is, I wasn't expressing this to come out of my mouth, but that's what Eric gets when he brings me on. The end of that was sounds like a perfect wedge in insurance though. Mm. Right. So if you, if you like, if you have that figured out for health and if you have that figured out for finance, like you put those two things together and you basically have a story to tell to the entire insurance industry as well. Right. It feels like that, like they're, they're more risk averse, I guess, to some degree, hence the (laughs) Eric, you just changing sides of the room. Anyway, but yeah, it feels like the the wedge into insurance there feels like a really kind I of, I mean, maybe you'll just like fall backwards into it. But I mean, obviously maintain the maniacal focus,
2: but it seems like the overlap there could be obvious and next steppy, domino-y. Well, I, I agree completely. I, you know, insurance is one of those things that is a direct combination of finance and health, you know, in the case of, of health insurance. And we say it's like the first step is actually just making it so that there is a way for this data to be accessible because currently it's just in silos, right? It's sitting in some hospital somewhere, not available to anybody except that the anonymized person who who is is doing that kind of shady data brokerage. So if we can go and connect these data sets and make it so you can have, you know, these 360 degree calculations of, of individuals then how can we go and improve processes, make them more efficient, make the let the insurance providers do a, a better job for cheaper on behalf of patients, and then have that trickle down to to those services? But it's 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 slow, right? Let's say whereas the financial use cases that we're talking about today have this crazy hair on fire problem of banks shutting down, you know, almost randomly in healthcare. You're going and, and, and trying to convince organizations that are really slow, that have an established way to do things, to go and and, and implement technology that, that's better, but maybe not solving an immediate problem. And there are a lot of visionary companies out there that are pursuing this in the way that I just described. One of the less known fields of Web3 is, is one that's referred to as decentralized science. And you have really passionate people that are trying to rebuild these processes from the, the ground up. But it's, uh, let's say, a little bit harder to go and, and get the masses inspired to, to pursue these motions than it is for, you know, trading monkey and poop pictures, right? Is that like all of folding at home, or is
0: that like a different? Is that like decentralized computing, kind of all running together on solving one, like Alzheimer's oriented issue, or is or is decentralized science something? No, different?
2: that's one form of it. So. You know, a bunch of the guys from Boink, which I can't remember what the acronym. I think it's related to, to Berkeley Open. Uh, I'm not going to have it here. That's all right. I got a giggle out of BOINC, Boink. so that's all I needed. Oh, yeah.
1: No, there's there's a bunch of them.
2: Yep. Berkeley Open Infrastructure for Network Computing. So Jonathan Starr is one of the guys there. They went and evolved Boink into have a pretty well-known product called Gridcoin. I think it's Gridcoin. I don't think it's Gitcoin but they're trying to go and, and promote uh, public goods work that's around this decentralized computation. The the trick with like decentralized computation is that IP rights are very gnarly. So we, we sort of break down the decentralized science problem from a research perspective into, are you dealing with a decentralized data set or are you dealing with decentralized research that has decentralized IP associated with it? And it's a lot easier to do decentralized data right now because then you're just saying, we as a collective are going to agree on how these data subjects will be compensated. And then that's the end of it, right? And then the research can happen from one organization that owns the IP going forward. If you're going to go and have you know, Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline and Stanford and MIT collaborating on a research proposition, well, those four organizations need to go and establish a corporate entity that can own the IP after the fact and, and determine who owns what percentage of that, that equity. That's hard. Like that, that level of coordination between entities is just challenging in a way that I haven't really seen materialize super well right now.
1: Decentralized science, it, the health, like th- these are all, it's interesting to me that these are all the starting points, but that eventually all data ends up there, right? Like this is, and this is something, when we first met, I was in the middle of working on the biology book. And so I was like fresh, I had freshly installed his idea of the ledger of record. So I think like that's a good like the vision of the ledger of record is maybe a good place, a good capstone to put on this, because I think it's a really broad view. And so I want to I can read a quick version of this. And then I sort of want to end with like, what is the 50 year version of chain and the future of data? And how does the world look and work and feel when all data has the capabilities that sort of we just technologically learned to give it. So this is, this is from a quote from Bology about the ledger of record. The ledger of record is the combination of all feeds of on-chain data. It subsumes social media feeds, data APIs, event streams, newsletters, and RSS and RSS. It'll take years to build, but will ultimately become the decentralized layer of facts that underpins all narratives. People will put data on chain because they'll earn money from supplying it. Every person or organization slowly moves from posting on centralized social media platforms or databases to posting on decentralized protocols. Decentralized media will turn that into monetization, permissions, distribution, and programmability all built in. And I think that's The data of all those individual oracles go into the ledger of record, which gives us cryptographically verifiable facts about the world, like the entire world. And he has another passage where he talks about like how many of our activities produce digital artifacts now, right? Like every Fitbit tracks where we are, phones track where we are, our phones track like every minute that we're looking at it, every transaction, every communication, like not all of not every bit necessarily is going to end up on a chain, though maybe it will. And and what becomes possible? He's like, you can essentially replay an entire civilization through its digital record if it's saved in these like decentralized ways. And I think it's so fascinating to just think about the world through that lens and what another decade or five of progress in this world, in this direction can look like.
2: That was amazing. I I couldn't agree more with with that statement. And I'll use that as the foundation for, you know, where our vision of the world is going with Weavechain, and you mentioned at the start of our our conversation today, we think that 100% of the world's data is going to move over to Web3 data rails. Now, I would say this, that like the only difference between our vision and and let's say Balaji's is that I don't think it will be one ledger of record. I think it's actually going to be a variety of ledgers of record that are interconnected and interoperable. And it's, it's sort of like a, a beautiful network of networks kind of thing that is connected, but you know, allows for isolation and privacy, frankly. But at WeaveChain, what we think the properties of Web3 data are is that, first off, anybody who is going to go and interact with the, you know, ledger, we'll call it the ledger of record for now, it needs to have a verifiable identity, right? It needs to be provable activity from individuals that can't be spoofed. And you know the second thing there is that once they are doing something, it needs to have these cryptographic guarantees of immutability, either by putting the data directly on chain or by using blockchain anchoring, like we do at WeaveChain. And, and you know, third and, and and really I think more interesting for for most people is this idea that there will be a perfect lineage of how data has been moved and shared and accessed and transformed between parties. I think our our children are going to look back on on the days of us being the product and, and not knowing that our, our data was used in a Cambridge analytical scandal as a, as a crazy thing. It's just going to be, it looked like, you know, we're all these leaky sieves where all that wearable information that's coming from our bodies is just being sucked up by people that we don't even know about. And once you have that lineage, we hope that the individuals are active participants in this data economy, that you can be proud of the fact that your healthcare data is being used to drive these amazing you know, pharmaceutical discoveries in plain sight, not as like a dirty secret from from some guy that's b- benefiting on the back end, and, and we really like tokens for for that compensation as opposed to just dollars, because tokens give you the ability to incentivize people with more than just cash. You can be, you know, establishing reputation for individuals for you know not just giving their healthcare data, but you know, trying to answer surveys and and participate in, in these trials and, and do more. Or it's it's not just cash compensation. And ideally, they, they're able to share that data in a way that doesn't even you know docs themselves that can be can be shared without breaching personal privacy. You know maybe I don't want my personal medical conditions to be visible by the world, but I still want to make it accessible for the right people to to understand and and, and use in studies. And, and the last thing is to you know the the broader ledger of records, we think there are really exciting things happening with decentralized applications that have decentralized logic, as opposed to Web3 data, this is truly decentralized logic. And and we think that that's gonna be part of that interoperability spectrum. So what we're trying to do at We've Chain is make it as easy as possible for data to, to get those properties in, in the short term, right? That's gonna be how that innovate, invisible wave of innovation's gonna happen, is by making it easy, making it easy to, to participate as opposed to saying the only way to do it is to rebuild your entire application on Ethereum. Gosh, you know, it's like it's just not it's not going to work. It's not it's not going to work. It hasn't worked at at a mass scale, at least.
1: It's especially not going to work in finance. That's right. You got it. Nobody's rebuilt anything in finance since 1924. (laughs) Not and had it adopted.
2: Exactly. There's some interesting innovation lab (laughs) projects out there, but it's really tough to to achieve production scale. (laughs) Yeah, but we still use IBM
0: products from when Watson was alive, and we're not talking
2: about the AI. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, I was having a lot of conversations this past week about SAP and you know Oracle and, and these ERP systems that are, are still built in, in, in COBOL, and let's say even further away from, from being upgraded. So there are some warts. I think when the final COBOL like, <laughs> programmer dies,
0: I think that like, <laughs> just all, I don't know, it's going to be an interesting funeral is my theory. Like, I think we should all go. And I just it feels like a moment in time. It feels like something that we need to either celebrate or be very scared be of.
2: Be very scared of. <laughs> One of the fun anecdotes I heard <laughs> is that when COVID hit, they had to go and bring all these COBOL programmers out of retirement to go and fix these government systems that clearly were not going to be upgrading <laughs> in the short term.
0: Yeah. There was a one of my mentors in Kansas City actually got re enlisted he was the CIO of a uh like aerospace company way back in the day. And he got reenlisted during COVID to like, he was like 80, 84 at this point. And we're asking him to put on a mask and walk back into fucking government buildings and like work on Like,
2: like lethal as, as if he's, I'm getting too old for this shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And I don't know if you have to get Like, I don't know about like COBOL, like programming. I don't, do you have to get into a flow in order to like, I don't know how this works, but I can't imagine that man with like, you know, two liter of Mountain Dew and like, you know, cold, like it just full dark out curtains. Like I just can't imagine that happening anyway.
2: Give me the most powerful thing of chat GBT. It's going to learn Cobol. <laughs> it's going to <laughs> take care of this. Oh, be huge. holy shit, dude. That's actually a fucking That's thought. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> GBT four
0: now with Cobol. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Eric, you want to, you want to wrap it up or what do what you, what are you thinking on final
1: notes? I mean, I feel like we're, yeah, we're in garbage time. This is a good, I mean, a- amazing overview. I, I think it's, it's so hard to like know where to stop with this because I feel like Weave Chain touches so many things and can touch so many things in the future. And Zach has just such a deep understanding of FinTech and I just want us all to talk forever, but people don't want to listen forever. Mm-hmm. So-
2: Well, I hope they reach out. I-, I hope the people that are excited about building this future with us and figure out ways that we can go and, and build it together. Because I think that's the most important thing right now.
1: Let's sort of end on those notes. So o- Omar, who's sort of the perfect set of people for you to talk to? Who are the role players? Who are the companies? Wh- what are the best people to sort of carry forward this flag into the future?
2: You know, at the enterprise level, it's anybody that's in the org stack for a chief data officer. But the reality is we're working with institutions that, that don't even have chief data officers a lot of the time. So people in the tech stack that are working on even financial reporting and not in the tech stack, reach out to us. And those could be hedge funds, startups, venture capitalists, or people that are on the auditing side of things and are trying to go and build you know, better systems for making these attestations at scale for organizations. And similarly, any, any data developers that are going out there and, and trying to, to build these Web3 data flows, we'd love to talk to you. You know, Weave Chain is in a, a public beta right now, so people can go and get started with it on their own, and reach out to us when they're looking for a little bit more help to, to speed things up.
1: Beautiful, thank you very much, and thank you, Zach, for lending your fintech expertise to this. I'm, I'm, I understand some of the this is a little bit of an abstract view of the future you know it's it's not quite nuclear reactors but i think it's incredibly deeply important and some of the invisible innovations are some of the most important and some of the most underrated and are going to have a huge huge impact on people's lives going forward so I, I appreciate having you data nerds doing your work and making this making this invisible wave of innovation happen i can't wait to learn more about it and see it see it uh touch more people oh
2: thanks so much Eric
1: whether they realize it or not the invisible touching
2: that's right you don't even
1: know <laughs> I don't know
2: if do that's that that's a one.
0: beautiful <laughs> note we almost
1: <laughs> we almost had a good outro and then I ruined it and then I touched and, it and another episode of Somewhat
0: Smart Friends is in the book <laughs> I hope that was helpful and fun thanks again to Eric for having me on had a blast and I learned a ton if you want to learn more about Omar, Weavechain, Chain, Eric, Smart Friends, or, I don't know, I guess that's kind of really all you can learn about. Or you can subscribe to the newsletter or the podcast. You can do all those things. Go to the show notes. That's where you can find that information. And I just kind of said it, but it's still in the script I'm reading, so I'm going to read it to you anyway. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app as the responsible podcast. Incredibly responsible podcast host that I am. And if you want our weekly emails, go to ForFintechSake.com, subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and I love you all.